You're listening to Denver Orbit, featuring voices. I'm going to give you an awkwardly long and uncomfortable list of reasons why you shouldn't shave outside. Stories. Now, he was very outspoken about the effects of, of war on himself. In music from Colorado's creative community. Listen at DenverOrbit.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or most other podcast apps. The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. You have all made it through the XXS. It's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 170. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And thank you so much for four great years of the show. Two weeks ago, we had Dave Sevick on here. He is vice president at Firefly Autism. It was a great way to culminate four years of being on the air. And this week, I am thrilled to bring you something which I have never done before. And it is a guest who is actively campaigning for federal office. My guest this week is Syra Rao, and she is a candidate for the 1st Congressional District of Colorado. That largely represents Denver, and she is in a primary against longtime incumbent Diana DeGette, who has represented this district for, I think, the last 22 years. Syra, I was introduced to by Tony Pigford. He is the Dean of Students at the Boys School of Denver. And I ran into him at the gals luncheon and I said, Tony, I'm always looking for guests. You're a fascinating guy. Who should I know? And he recommended Syra to me. And so Syra was copied on an email. We got in touch. Everything came together relatively quickly. It's fascinating to me, having worked around government and worked around campaigns for most of my professional career, to understand what goes into this process and what the engagement is actually like and what the activities are like. But I realized that my experience is not necessarily typical of your average person. So I wanted to shed some light on that. Additionally, I talked to Syra about what it's like to go against someone who has been entrenched in office for as long as she has. Anyone who comes in trying to unseat an incumbent runs on a change campaign. What is her platform? We talk about things like campaign finance. And why she doesn't accept any corporate or PAC money. That's a philosophical stance she strongly believes in. And she tells me a little bit about why. She also talks about her platform. How do we eventually switch to all renewable energy? What is the path like to get there? What is the process? And a word of note here is that she doesn't get into the weeds on these things. And that was something I found very interesting. Because she's a business person. She has a law degree. She was a a lawyer on Wall Street for a little while. Told me it didn't really wasn't really her thing. And she started a children's book publishing company that is just going gangbusters. It's doing great, great work. It's called In This Together Media. And we talk a little bit about her business, but mostly the the vast majority of her time is spent on the campaign trail and trying to raise money. But what's interesting to me is listening to her talk about, I don't want to get in the weeds because what I think is let's set a goal and then work backwards for how we get there. That's what you do in business. Why shouldn't government work the same way? And I thought that was a fascinating approach. 
So overall, this was an illuminating interview. I'm intensely grateful to Tony for hooking us up. And I'm, I'm thrilled to bring it to you to kick off year five of the John of All Trades podcast. I can't think of a better way. We've never had someone actively campaigning for office. And what a great thing to bring to you as we bring you a brand new year of the show. Now, a couple of quick notes before we get there. Sad note first, uh, Westward released its Best of Denver issue, and John of All Trades did not repeat as Reader's Choice for Best Podcast. Uh, my congratulations to ProCo360 on earning enough votes to win Reader's Choice Award. On a happier note, you heard their ad at the beginning of this week's episode, and they are the winner of Editor's Choice Best of Denver this year. It's Denver Orbit. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Josh Madison. They are a new addition to the Denver Podcast Network, and he is doing just fantastic work. So it's an award that's well-earned, well-deserved. Congratulations to Josh and the entire Denver Orbit team. Anyone associated with that show, you're doing terrific work. Congratulations. It's well-deserved. Let's get to this week's episode. Episode 170 of the John of All Trades podcast is with Syra Rao. She is a candidate for the 1st Congressional District of Colorado, and her episode begins right now. He is part Chihuahua, part Rat Terrier. Okay. And he'll be two next month. Is uh, is he like a rescue? or He is a rescue. And where did you pick him up? From the Dumb Friends League. That's Although I... he's not that dumb. He's very smart. <laughs> um, and vocal, too. He was certainly he vocal was. when I came in. So maybe in terms of actual words... But, uh, yeah, no, definitely definitely not a dumb friend. No. How's Tuesday treating you so far? Yeah? What have yeah. you been up to? What have I been up to? Uh, I was just down at the new Zeppelin station. Oh, yeah. I haven't been there yet. How is it? It was awesome. I, I picked up uh, some Indian food. Nice. It was delicious and hung out with the, the owner of it, Kyle Zeppelin, which was great. Cool. So it's funny. You hear that it's called uh, Zeppelin Station. You're like, oh, that's a cool name. What's it mean? And you go, oh, it's Carl Zeppelin. Oh, all right. <laughs> Kyle Zeppelin. Kyle Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not to be confused with Led Zeppelin. No, no, certainly not. Yeah. Although I wonder wonder if Jimmy Page and Robert Plant are getting along these days. Because that's not always the case. That's a good question. You should go, give them a ring. Yeah, totally. Let's have them on the show. Yeah, that, <laughs> totally. That would be something. So this is Syra Rao, and she is a candidate for the 1st Congressional District of Denver. And of Colorado. Of Colorado, right. Which encompasses Denver. Which encompasses Denver. Yeah. That is an important distinction. Thank you for fixing that. So when is – we're recording this in March, and this will air, I think, f like first week of April. Where are we in the timeline? Uh, primary is June 26th, so a little bit more than three months away. Okay. And so how long have you been at it? A little over two months. So, wow, that's a pretty compressed timeline. It is. It's like we're, we're, we're accomplishing in five months what we should – be doing an 18 and we're actually keeping up. Wow. Really? Yeah. Is that killing you work-wise? Uh, killing is a relative <laughs> term. It sounds like you have something of a high pain tolerance. Then. I, I think I might. Okay. I think I might. <laughs> so, okay. What compelled you to throw your hat in the ring? And especially considering we are in the first congressional district of Colorado where the incumbent, uh, Diana DeGette has been 22 years. Mm-hmm. What compelled you to get into this race? Yeah. So I wrote an article for the Huffington Post in December called I'm a Brown Woman Who's Breaking Up with the Democratic Party. 
And it really kind of lays out my beef with the party establishment. And the response was overwhelming. Mm. I was stunned. I thought it was sort of a banal breakup letter. And it turns out it really hit a nerve. Yeah. I got really sort of generally three responses. And I continue to get emails from people every day. Mm. One uh, from party loyalists who told me to basically go away and that I was a party trader, oftentimes right. in racist terms. And then on the other extreme in people, racist terms from people within the own, within your own party. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And then sort of the other extreme, uh, by the way, you know, is MLK jr. Who said the KKK is not our biggest problem. It's the white moderate. So let's not forget that the other extreme were black, white, gay, straight, male, female. We used to think the Democratic Party was the lesser of two evils. Now we kind of think that they might even be worse because they're hypocrites. We're no longer voting. Mm. And then I thought about that. Oh, my God, is that is that my camp? It can't be my camp. I, I can't imagine, A, not voting, and I can't imagine voting for the Republicans. And then the third bucket was, we agree with you. Why don't you run for office? Hmm. And I thought to my, my initial... Response to that is, can't we expect more of our representatives um, without having to actually run ourselves? But then the more I sat with it over the Christmas holiday, I thought my, my issue with Democratic politicians in Congress who've been there for decades and they have safe seats and they could use that power and their privilege to actually advocate for the disenfranchised. And in this case, really have Denver be the beacon of the progressive movement in the country. Um, they sit on their hands mm. and they don't do anything and they check the right boxes most of the time. Right. Uh, but they're not actually leading. They're running away from problems like homelessness and affordable housing and public transportation, saying those are local issues, which is intellectually dishonest. Well, and sort of a platform of the Republican establishment. It, it, it's, it's, it all feels to me like these pe people need to go. Hmm. And um, – I thought to myself, if I don't use my own power and privilege to at least challenge the status quo and give the voters of District 1 a different option, then shame on me. I should probably stop complaining about it if I'm not going to try to do something about it. So I came back from Christmas break and announced my run. Wow. Interesting. And have you gotten a response or do you have a sense for what the response has been from your opponent? I, you know, I'm not going to. You wouldn't even specula speculate? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, you can ask her. Okay, perfect. And perhaps I will. Who knows? I'm curious, as you are getting established and you know, you're doing in five months what you should have ideally, I guess, been doing for the last 18 months, what is it like setting up a campaign? For anyone listening who hasn't been involved in politics, what sort of goes into the steps of A, establishing your candidacy and then putting the structure behind it so you can actually mm -hmm. do the business of running for office? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think um, a big problem with our government is that it's not transparent. There's there's not it, there's just very little transparency. Hmm. So I guess I should the way it, it works is you raise money and and people wonder, why do you need the money? You raise money so you can hire a staff. Right. So, you know, I've hired a field director, finance director, campaign manager. We have to pay for digital ads. We have to pay to get videos shot pay people to knock on doors, you know, all this stuff costs money. Right. To, you're paying people for their labor. Right. You're yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, God forbid. Right. And it's expensive. And so um, to me, the biggest thing I've learned is I've known this sort of intellectually, but 
seeing it in play is the corporate money in politics. Mm. So bear in mind, most people in Congress, shy of seven, take lots and lots of corporate money. So out of 535 elected officials, all but seven of them mm-hmm. take corporate money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So, for example, here in District 1, our representative takes a ton of money from Big Pharma. Um, what does that mean? Who then does that person answer to? Is it Big Pharma or is it the people of District 1? I think it's impossible to take corporate money. If someone pays you a salary, essentially, hmm. you report to that person. So we wonder why we have uh, school shootings. We wonder why we have movie shootings. We wonder why we have an opioid crisis and why we can't have health care for all. And we wonder why we haven't weaned ourselves off of fossil fuels. Look no further than corporate money in politics, period. It's, it's, it's not a sideshow. It's the main event. So, you know, Americans... Frankly, even both sides, I would say, agree on a lot of things, and we can't even get to the conversation because of the issue of corporate money and politics. Okay, so the the basic argument you're making is that elected officials are answering to those who fund their campaigns and not to the people they actually represent. Well, they represent the people who fund their campaigns. Okay. So they're representing companies rather than human beings. They're not representing us the people anymore. It is, it is not we, the people anymore. It's we, the corporations. Interesting. So what's, what's difficult is that the Supreme court has allowed for corporate money. Um, the citizens United decision is very controversial. They've argued that campaign donations are viewed as free speech. I'm guessing that's something you probably fundamentally disagree with. Totally. But we have three branches of government. So yes, the Supreme court has said it's okay. Let me ask you rhetorically, how do how do people in Congress get around that? Tell me. They stop taking the money or they pass campaign finance reform. Right. So it is it is incredibly hypocritical to say this is all Citizens United fault. We know that decision's there. We know what it says. We know it's not going anywhere, at least not in my generation, not in your generation, probably mm. not in our kids' generations. But we do know we can get around it. So to say that you hate the decision and then hire a PAC fundraiser to then call these companies to get money for you after you've been tweeting about how bad Citizens United is, is ridiculous. Don't take the money. Be Add to the seven people in Congress right. who are not taking the money. Change the way of doing business by taking personal action. It turns it into a business. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I would argue right now our, our government is a business. It's We're being bought and sold by, by companies, and it's not right. That's I, – I mean, that's that's an interesting point to me. And one thing that uh, I'm interested in expanding upon is by not taking any corporate money whatsoever, you're not necessarily making a value judgment that, hey, these companies are good. They're good actors. I mean, there are good companies out there. There are companies that are acting in good faith and working on behalf of the American people that donate to uh, that donate to political campaigns. But by not taking any, you're not casting a value judgment on individual companies or individual PACs. You're saying the entire system needs to be done away with. Totally. Yeah. This is not remotely a value judgment on the companies in and of themselves. They should just operate as companies. Right. They shouldn't be buying elections, period. So in terms of how that affects the way you run your campaign, that strikes me as having a lot more legwork. 
because by not taking money from PACs, you know, they can give in greater number than individuals can because there are caps on the number of donations that individuals can give to a, a campaign. So how does that manifest in the way that you have to go out and raise money? It means that I'm spending tons and tons and tons of time making tons and tons and tons of phone calls and sending tons and tons of emails asking people for $27. Wow. So $27 at a time. Yep. And how, how successful have you been at that? And we've raised a good, we've raised well into six figures. Uh, people want change. Yeah. People want change, but what a shame that the amount of time and energy I'm spending on raising the money just so I can mm. keep up. Uh, I think we need to have publicly financed elections period. I think that solves that solves a big part of the problem. And I know that the argument against that is that the incumbents are going to have a huge leg up. The incumbents already have <laughs> hegemonic control. We have incumbents in office for decades and decades and decades. So they already have that. They already have the leg up. So in terms of incumbents staying in office for decades and decades and decades, uh, is there an argument that you're making implicitly about the need for term limits? I think that we should have term limits and I can guarantee you if and when I win this, I would not stay longer than 10 years. So that's five terms. Oh, okay. The Think about that. 10 years. That's a long time. <laughs> and you're putting the cap on it at 10. That's a long time. That is We're a long time. We're talking about 22, 25, 30 years. Uh, you know, it's the district has changed a lot right. in 22, 23 years. No, and what's funny is I think you find agreement on that across the aisle as well in terms of term limits. Now, there are certainly drawbacks to that, you know, loss of institutional knowledge, that kind of thing. You hand off institutional knowledge to organizations like lobbyists by doing that. But that said, keeping up with the demographics and getting fresh ideas in there is not necessarily a bad thing either. And if we're looking at like the private sector, which, by the way, the private sector controls the public sector, hmm. no one would advocate to have a CEO in a company for a gazillion years. Right. There's just there, that, that doesn't even make any sense. In terms of incumbents, too, one thing that's interesting is this principle applies to anything, like in terms of business. It's easier to keep a customer than it is to sign a new customer. So... Uh, incumbents will always have an advantage uh, of what they're doing because they can also point to a body of work. Uh, anytime someone comes in, they are running because they say the way we're doing things is not working. And that's always a walk uphill. I'm fascinated by that, especially because this happened so suddenly and so organically for you. The distinction I think you're drawing is clear in terms of not taking corporate and PAC money versus individual donors. What else sets you apart from the incumbent that you're running against? Well, I'll just talk about what I believe in, and then you know you can go do your homework and see what what she believes in and and how she's voted and how she's led. I think number one, we have to pass a clean dream act. It is not just the Republicans' fault that we don't have one. The Democrats have had a long time to do it, and they haven't done it. And they even had they were put on notice after Barack Obama signed the executive order, and they didn't do it. So um, that is an abomination. And those Democrats who have been in Congress for a long, long time, uh, that's on them, as well as the Republicans. That is on Congress. That's number one. Right. Number two, I think we have to eliminate student loan debt. We are crippling an entire generation of people with these horrible student loans. They cannot buy houses. This is also killing the whole, you know, aff the affordable housing crisis is by and large, due to this, 
uh, we're creating cycles of poverty and we're not letting these people, these young people kind of get on with their lives. They're trying, well, I had a millennial tell me she's trying to, the American dream for millennials is survival and wow. not success. And, um, when you say millennial, that, I mean, that's a pretty big spread. That's anyone from what? 18 to like my age. I think I'm technically a millennial. How old I'm are you? 36. I think you're just like at that sort of. Yeah. I'm right on the cusp. Yeah. Yep. But it's unconscionable. And, uh, I think it, it's really killing our economy. I think if we can, if we can scale back the corporate tax cuts and, um, eliminate the student loan debt, we will really boost the economy as well. So that's another place. I believe very deeply in Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and think it's pretty horrible that, um, people are scared to say that term. I was told by one of my kids' coaches, a liberal white guy, that he would support my platform if I would take Black Lives Matter off of my website. Black Lives Matter, that that encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. Criminal justice reform, ending the school-to-prison pipeline. Let's talk about police brutality. Let's talk about the fact that black and brown people are scared to walk down the street and that they have to teach their children that police are not always their friends, that they could actually mm. be their enemies. That's a very different thing. Well, and as a white guy, that's not something I ever really had to learn not. or concern myself with. Of course not. So um, I think this is a national conversation that we need to have. And I think that Congress could be leading the way on that. Um, in terms of guns, we have to have federal funding for data and research on gun violence, period. Let's start there. Right now, there's a ban on that. Let's turn the ship around on that. To say again that um, this is all the NRA's fault, it's not. I mean, people could, people could fight against that. People in Congress could fight against that. And in some ways, I feel like there's a bit of a tacit understand, understanding within, um, Congress between the parties. You keep your NRA money. We'll tweet about it. We'll say how horrible this stuff is. But as long as you lay off our big pharma money, we can all get along. Interesting. So, uh, there's almost a quid pro quo in your estimation going on in that regard. I think there's a tremendous amount of partisan drama. That is just that drama and theater. It is theater. And we've, and social media makes it, you know, available at all times. Um, I don't think that most Republicans and Democrats in Congress hate each other as much as we'd like to believe, or they'd like us to believe. No, certainly not. And I think the demonization, um, on both sides is not helpful at all. So I will 100% agree with you on that. So I talk about this a lot. Like, um, I was at, at the world trade center on September 11th and I was at, third year in law school and was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office on Tuesday mornings. Wait, September 11th, 2001? Yes. You were at the World Trade yeah. Center? Okay. Yeah. And so um, I you know, was one of those people running up the street, bloody, without shoes and all that. And my God. I spent the day um, scared my sister was dead. She spent the day scared I was dead. Both of our parents, immigrant parents in Richmond, Virginia, thought both their daughters were dead, and it was horrible. My law school, I went to NYU Law, which was below 14th Street, was shut for weeks and weeks after that. And I remember just being so afraid, and everybody was so afraid. Any sound we heard would be, is that another terrorist attack? And I really believed that uh, the leaders of the country would pull us out of this deep phobia. And instead, the Republicans took that crystallized the fear, sold it to their base as fear of other black people, brown people, gay people, trans people. And the Democrats also crystallized fear and sold it to their base, which is fear of the Republicans and fear of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats' entire platform now is resistance. And nobody is talking about what we want to do. 
We keep talking about what we don't want to do. But I can tell you, at least, you know, my friends and the people I talk to all over District 1, they're not feeling incredibly emboldened by either party. Right. And I think everyone is looking for new leaders, leaders who are open and honest and transparent and are, and again, we come back to the money, are not taking the money so they can actually listen to what they have to say. And I hear this all the time. We're afraid. We're afraid of our, of student loans. We're afraid of, of not being able to pay for prescription drugs. We're afraid of walking down the street. And nobody is making anybody feel better. And trashing Donald Trump isn't doing anything. And, and in fact, I would say it's hurting. It's not mm. helping at this point. It's giving him a platform, and he's relishing every single second of it. Well, and are we deepening the divide between each other instead of building bridges? Yes. There's no bridge. Right. There's no bridge. And if you actually sit down and talk to somebody who is a Trump supporter, I bet you you have a lot more in common with them than you think. And we are made to think the opposite. Right. I think gone are the days where bridges are even important or interesting anymore. Hmm. The more partisan, the better. And, and and it's being sold to us and we're all buying it. The more red meat, the more the more we can dig in and almost like retrench. Because the, the more people sort of point out, and I, you'll read a think piece about this once a week, about the seemingly baffling support of uh, evangelicals that they have for Donald Trump. I mean, that's basically fodder for people to demonize evangelicals and for evangelicals to say, we are being persecuted. Yeah. And that sucks. Yeah. You describing this to me in this way is sort of the reason for existence of my entire show. How do we sit down? How do we learn more about each other? How do we, geez, just be less afraid of each other? And so what you're saying uh, is certainly resonant to me, at least philosophically. And uh, that, that's nice to hear. Yeah, you know, so I, I started a company six years ago with a good friend of mine called In This Together Media. Yes. And what we believed and continue to believe and have been very successful with it is if everybody comes to the table together to come up with the best possible story, the story is going to be amazing. So that's what we do. Carrie and I, my partner and I and our agent and our authors sit around a table and plot out characters and plot out story and – um Hire writers who, if, if we have a book on the black suffragette movement, we have a black woman writing that book. Yeah. Uh, we bring everyone to the table and our stories are amazing. And publishers are in bidding wars over our books now because our stories are amazing. I think that applies to everything, law, business, medicine, science, sports, and indeed Congress. And I don't think, again, I come back to the money. As long as we it, it, imagine a dark cloud hanging over, once we get the dark cloud of money out, we can bring everyone to the table. Mm -hmm. And what if everybody comes to the table and talks about what matters to them? This is what happens in business. Right. You sit down and you talk about your pain points, you talk about your priorities, and you come to a consensus. And what if people came to the table and said, okay, this is what matters to me. Here's my, here's my deal breaker. Here's what I really, here's what really matters. And people walk away feeling 70% happy rather than some people walking away saying, I'm the 100% winner. <laughs> and some people walking away saying, I'm 100% loser. Yeah. And that's what has dropped out is us listening to each other. I hear this over and over again. Nobody is asking me what I care about. And the reason no one's asking what they care about is because they're not answering to those people. They're answering to the companies that are funding their campaigns. It's as simple as that. It's striking to, to hear you describe this because 
I, I can picture members of those who are, for whatever reason, in opposition to you, painting you as anti-business. You know what I mean? Like, no PAC money, no corporate money, that kind of thing. That's an easy talking point to sort of lob a grenade at you with. Um, but hearing you describe that, that is exactly how business goes. Having worked for a Fortune 500 company, we had to spend a lot of time listening to people who didn't like what we did. Uh, whether it was our board of directors who were representing the shareholders, whether it was regulators, whether it was community members who were unhappy with something we were doing in their neighborhood, we had to listen to them and come up with solutions that if they didn't work entirely for everyone, they had to at least uh, address some of the main concerns that they had. It's interesting because what you're describing isn't something that you hear a lot out of elected officials. For instance, the lack of town halls by some members of Congress here in Colorado. In terms of the ways in which that you would interact with your constituents in a direct way, if you are not sort of paying heed uh, to business and serving, I think it's fair to say, corporate masters in this regard, assuming you're successful here, how do you then operate in Congress and how is that different? Sure. First and foremost, I'd live here. So that's not a small thing. It's okay. a pretty important thing. I'd live here. My kids would con continue to go to school here. Number two, I would open up a satellite office. Number three, I would open up offices all over the city and have office hours and be accessible and have people could have my phone number. People would have access to my chief of staff. I believe that access to your representatives is key. And I hear over and over and over again, people are not experiencing that here in District 1. Understood. So in terms of living here, you know, you, you think of your elected officials and they're in Washington, but how often are elected officials actually in Washington? Well, you know, they have to be there when Congress is in session. Certainly. But um, many of them actually return to their districts on the weekends and holidays and summers, et cetera. Uh, that's what I would do. Okay. But I mean, your base would be here. You wouldn't, yeah, obviously there's a, a place you have to get in DC. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the the majority of your time, when you are not there, you are here. Yeah. yeah. So based on what you understand, is that uncommon? For some people. Okay. Um, I want to get back to, to something that you said um, with regard to In This Together Media. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that, and your your story about the World Trade Center was uh, was something. The, the only thing that I can even relate that to is my dad was in D.C., uh, on September 11th, 2001, he was on his way to the Capitol when they heard word of the attacks and they turned around, went back to their hotel. And I think the one that was bound for the Capitol ended up in the field in Pennsylvania. But I was worried about him all day because, you know, I, I don't know where he is. I don't know where the Pentagon is in relationship to where he was. Based on the bio on your website, you had worked on Wall Street for a little while. What were you doing there? I worked at a law firm. Okay. I'm a former lawyer. Okay. Like corporate law, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And what facilitated your exit from that? Well, I clerked on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals after law school, and then I wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. So I left uh, to do a book tour, and then I started my company. So I actually really enjoyed working at the law firm. I was at Cleary Gottlieb Steen in Hamilton. It's a lovely place. But I knew working on Wall Street was not going to be for me. And I also recognized this gaping hole in children's media, which was a lack of diversity. So our books feature kids that you normally don't see in the main character position. So black, brown, gay, disabled, poor. And Carrie and I sought to diversify children's media. And we were told that we were crazy, that we were outsiders, that we should intern 
for a publishing house rather than try to change it. Okay. And we were undeterred for two reasons. Number one, we knew that in order to connect with story, you have to be able to see yourself in the story. That is a universal truth. Number two, representation matters. Six years later, like I said, people are in bidding wars over our books, not because their hearts have grown three sizes, but because our stories sell because right. people like to see themselves in stories and representation matters. The same goes for Congress. Understood. Right now, every member of Congress in Colorado is white. We've never had a woman of color go to Congress from Colorado. It is 2018. That yeah. is not representative of Colorado, and that's certainly not representative of District 1 of Colorado. Well, it reminds me of something Ruth Bader Ginsburg said once about, uh, you know, what is the what is the number of women you'd like to see on the Supreme court? And she said, I don't think I'll be satisfied until they're all women mm -hmm. because for the history of the Supreme court right. up until very recently, right. it's been all men. Right. And so until there's a time where it can be all women, mm -hmm. I don't think that's representative of our society. Yeah. And all I'm saying is that maybe even just one, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let, let's start with one. Let's start with one. Let's see how that goes yeah. and how that unfolds. Yeah. In terms of I, – because I imagine running for Congress is taking the vast majority of your time, especially given the fundraising demands that you've articulated to me. What has that done to your normal day job of running your publishing company? I basically haven't slept. I mean I wake up at 4 in the morning. I work on In This Together Media for a couple hours and then try to get my kids organized and off to school. Right. How old are your kids? Seven and nine. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, then I work on the campaign all day in, into the evening. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely – I've taken a back – in this together has taken a bit of a back seat, and that's a bummer. But we are in a place right now, which is great. We've we've built the company such that I was able to take this time. And you've got a team there awesome that, that team. you can lean on. Totally. Um, and they're all very much behind this congressional run. That's fantastic. Okay. So uh, as we approach June 24th, you said this. 26th. Prime. 26th is the primary. It's my parents' anniversary. Oh, I should look have remembered that. that. Auspicious day. <laughs> Uh, 100%. What do the next, I mean, beyond sort of the, you know, you're, you're fundraising, you're going out meeting with the community as much as possible. What are the things that happen for you between now and then? Uh, that's really it. You Re know, okay, the, so. the fundraising continues and the coffees continue and knocking on doors continues and really just getting out into the community and meeting as many people as possible just so they know that there is another option this year. There are a couple other things. Well, one major thing that's happening, which is it's the first time we have an open primary. Oh, yes. And so independents can vote. And that's a huge chunk of the population. So it's really exciting. This is a really exciting time to be doing this. Yeah, it very much is. And uh, the, the open primary thing, uh, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it, but my my hope and my suspicion is that you bring people to the table. Well, A, you're opening it up to people who were never previously available or allowed mm -hmm. to open in primaries. But hopefully you get a, a more ideologically diverse slate of candidates in that way rather than primaries and caucuses previously tended to reward the hard left and the hard right. And, and there wasn't, in my opinion, a real diversity – uh, of viewpoints out there. And so hopefully that's, that's what we get here and we get a more representative leadership. So, which yeah. to me strikes me as something that you're banking on by way of process, the more people who are at the table, the better. Has there been, because there hasn't been a female person of color who has been a federal elected official here in Colorado, are you banking on increasing turnout? You know, if people see someone who 
represents their views or even just looks like them, are they more likely to vote? Is that in your estimation? Look, this is what I believe. I think that if you believe corporate money doesn't belong in politics, and if you believe that everyone deserves a seat at the table, that healthcare is a right, not a privilege, that you want guns out of schools and out of malls and out of churches and out of nightclubs, and if you want to wean off of fossil fuels, and if you want a clean dream act, and if you want somebody who is going to go, who has big ears and a big mouth to go to Congress, that's who's going to vote for me. Gotcha. Big ears and a big mouth. Is that, does that show up on your website? <laughs> no, it should though. <laughs> that's good. I've never heard that before, but uh, that's, that's a nice selling point. Um, with regard to weaning ourselves off fossil fuels, you know, energy policy is something that is certainly complex. Fossil fuels are still a very large part of our portfolio. How do you envision us weaning off of fossil fuels? So again, I, I, I say I never want to get into the weeds okay. on how things happen because I think we have to we have to decide collectively what the end game is. This is again what happens in business. You decide what <laughs> what your goal is, and then you figure out a way to get there and work backwards and work backwards. So if we can decide collectively, culturally, that we want to do that in this country, which a lot of other countries have done, mm-hmm. we figure out a way to do it. Right. And there's a billion ways to skin that cat. There 100% is. I want to go back to something that you said, um, which was there was a person that you had an interaction with that said if you took Black Lives Matter um, off your campaign platform, then they'd be more inclined to vote for you. What is it about that that you think is so frightening, especially to someone like the – I think you said the white moderate, right? What What is so vexing, so frightening, so terrifying about that notion? Oh my goodness, this is a much longer conversation. All right, let's take a let's take a bird's eye view, okay? Mm-hmm. This country was founded by people who wiped out an entire ind- ind- indigenous population, genocide. Thereafter, we brought we kidnapped Africans and created slavery. We had the civil rights movement. What have we not had in this country? Truth and reconciliation. Mm. We've never had truth and reconciliation. You ask kids in Germany when they learn about the Holocaust, and you know what they'll tell you? Mm. We never knew a time when there wasn't. We've always known about the Holocaust Mm. because they start teaching it from a very young age because it's part of their culture because they've had truth and reconciliation. Mm. We haven't done it. So this is a long way of saying that Americans, white Americans, by and large, cannot talk about race because we've never been taught to talk about race. Mm. So Black Lives Matter is an assault on everything that they've ever learned. They're good. They've been working towards the good. They're not part of the problem. They're part of the solution. It's this very knee-jerk feeling of guilt response. Mm. And, you know, I was just at a Democratic meeting last Saturday, and a white woman stood up and read for my Huffington Post piece saying she found it offensive that I said many Democrats, many party people don't do enough for Black Lives Matter. She said that was offensive. Hmm. Why is that your response? There's something happening that's that's what is landing on you that makes you feel instinctively defensive. And um, I apply that in my own life. Anytime I'm feeling defensive or bad, right. what is what is what kind of chord is being struck? Why am I feeling that way? Self-reflection would go a long way for all of us, yes. for all of us, including me. Yes. Um, I And I certainly, in my history of creating media, and when you were, I just wrote about this today. I posted a blog post that's sort of tangentially related to a point that you just made. 
being forced to listen to your own voice and the conversations that you have with people over the last four years. And then I produce radio for some of my clients. I also uh, was on the radio for a long time and I've written blog post after blog post. If you dig into that and you were forced to sort of reckon with your former self, you are going to find places where you go, I am not pleased with the person that I was. And that can be very, very challenging until you get some experience doing that. So what you are saying is, is very valuable in that let's get this out in the open so that we can move past it and ultimately all be better for each other. Is that a fair encapsulation of the point sure. you're making? Look at, look at, look, look at a marriage. If you have issues in a marriage and you don't communicate, the marriage ends eventually. Yes. It, communication, uh, open discussions is it's everything. And we haven't had that on race. We're only now starting to scratch the surface with gender, with the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. Mm -hmm. Let's get it out, all out in the open and talk about it. And, and again, come to a place where we can all agree we want uh, – who knows how we're going to get there? But can we all <laughs> agree that we want to have racial justice? Can we all agree that we want to have gender justice, that we want to have gender identification justice, sexual orientation mm. justice, all of it? And then we'll figure out a way to get there. But we have to agree to that first. And by saying that you find Black Lives Matter to be offensive or that it's offensive to call out people's inability to accept Black Lives Matter means that we're not agreed on that last point. No, you're, you're not agreed on the goal. And as you were saying that. Do we should like we'd all agree on gender justice and racial justice. And I think there are certain elements of culture that are resistant to that very idea. And so uprooting that is going to be uh, a challenge. Well, you've got to acknowledge your privilege and be willing yeah. to give some of it up. And that's a very scary thought that for, for many, that is a very scary thought, even acknowledging that they have privilege because there's sort of a knee jerk reaction there too, where it's like, I've worked for everything I've ever had in my life. And you go, uh, but you know, yes, you have, everyone has worked, but certain doors open for you that never open for others. Absolutely. And it's important to acknowledge that. And at we least. all have privilege. I have class privilege. I have able-bodied privilege, right? You know, I'm cisgendered. Yeah. I'm straight. I mean, there's tons of privilege we all have. So just acknowledge it and, and figure out a way to make it work for everybody. I 100% agree. And, you know, I think about someone like, um, like Patton Oswald talking about comedy. He's gotten to a place where he is one of the comedy elites. And he said, once you get up to a certain level, there are those who want to slam the door behind them and say, this is our club. I've worked hard for this. I need to sort of keep this. Um, he said, I'm not like that. Like, how can I use where I am to lift others up who want the same thing that I have? And essentially all anyone wants is to have what they don't, you know, and, and how do we help others who are less fortunate to achieve that? Uh, I, philosophically, I, I'm in full agreement with you on there. The same people who trash affirmative action in universities don't recognize that the biggest affirmative action policy in universities is legacy. Mm. <laughs> Right. It's like uh, you had someone who went here. Uh, let's give you a little preferential mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I'd never thought of it couched in those terms, but uh, that's a valid point you're making. I know you got plenty to do. So um, we're going to wrap this up. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can they donate? Uh, I'd love for you to, this is the time on the show when we do plugs. So feel free to plug the website uh, for Congress or for In This yep. Together Media. Yep. Whatever you'd like to plug, please do it now. Syraforcongress.com, S-A-I-R-A-F-O-R, Congress.com. 
please click on the donate button and 27 bucks. It goes a long way. Volunteer if you live in District 1 or even if you don't. Uh, we could always use some phone banking help. And I'd love everyone to get behind the movement. We can, we can really get, we can send strong leaders to Congress who don't, don't answer to corporations. Well, I'll tell you what, Syrah, it was a, an absolute pleasure getting to know you and uh, thank you for the time and I wish you continued success. Thanks. June 26th. That wraps up episode 170 of the John of All Trades podcast with Syrah Rao candidate for the first congressional district of Colorado. It was a pleasure getting to know you and thank you for sharing your vision, your ideas, and your ideology on my show. I'm grateful for the time you gave me and the insight you provided. Best of luck to you going forward. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M U-S. And our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S campaign season this episode speaks truth to that so if you have any kind of campaign whether it has to do with a public policy issue or if it's some consumer facing product four degrees can help your message get in front of the right audiences at a cost that is very attractive they understand the landscape they understand the audiences and they can get your product your message your service your candidate in front of the people who need to see it most the number four D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Rapid fire roulette of plugs. Social media, J-O-A-T pod is the handle for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Just search John of All Trades. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Facebook is the only place to get exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. I'm back here next week with a fresh episode. Proud to bring it to you and proud to press on into year five. Until I hear you back here then, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. speak.